This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. Johnny. past in new york city where we board up the doors and windows only to let people from new jersey and long island come streaming in damn it welcome to 21 jump scare i'm bradford lorick and i'm eric winnick 21 jump scare is a podcast about horror films and it's told from several points of view well, two, actually. We call this podcast 21 Jump Scare because, at least for now, our plan is to only produce 21 episodes. Well, but also because, as in a certain TV series from the late 80s, one of us is going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And this weirdo will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. Unbelievably. So each week we bring you a film from the perspective of someone re-watching it and from the point of view of someone experiencing it for the first time, which is to say, me. So now let us turn to this week's film, the 1968 zombie film that doesn't actually mention the word zombie, Night of the Living Dead. Okay, Mr. Winnick. So as our first timer, why don't you start us off with a brief synopsis? The late 60s, somewhere in rural Pennsylvania, siblings Johnny and Barbara are visiting their father's grave in order to place a wreath on it, a yearly ritual that brings out the worst in both of them. This year's trip, however, will be interrupted by the presence of a slowly moving human with a dead thousand mile stare who kills Johnny and almost does in Barbara, who manages to escape by disengaging the emergency brake on their car. With the strange man relentlessly pursuing her, Barbara takes refuge in a nearby farmhouse where she finds the corpse of a dead woman and where she is soon joined by Ben, also seeking shelter from what is quickly becoming a horde of strange, shambling individuals hell-bent on murdering any human in their path. Boarding up the windows and doors, Ben tries to engage Barbara, but she has been rendered near catatonic by the death of her brother, and by their situation which is described on the radio as a freak event 
possibly caused by radiation from a satellite recently returned from Venus. Soon, the pair receive another surprise when five people emerge from the cellar of the house, a family of three, the Coopers, and lovebirds Tom and Judy. As Ben details his plan to secure them on the ground floor, Mr. Cooper argues that the cellar will be a far better hiding place. Meanwhile, the TV details more atrocities. The slow-walking ghouls are in fact flesh eaters and are causing mayhem up and down the entire East Coast. Will Ben, Barbara, and their new friends slash adversaries make it out of the house? Will the government get its act together in time to conquer the demented plague of cannibals? For all of them, the long dark night of the soul is only getting stranger and more deadly. Ooh, got chills. So who's in this film, Mr. Winnick? Well, this film features a cast of unknowns, all of whom were acting or doing other things in the metro Pittsburgh area in 1968. That's uh, not a real thing. It's a real, th- it's a, well, metro Pittsburgh. I mean, Pittsburgh's a real thing. I, you know. So I, mean, I hear. Anyway, you you being from Pennsylvania, you might be able to tell us a thing or two about it. Maybe you know these people. Maybe you know Dwayne Jones, who played He used ben. to babysit me when of I was a course. kid. Of course. Taught me um, everything I needed to know about boarding up a house. Judith O'Day is Barbara. Barbara. Carl Hardman is Harry Cooper. Hardman's real-life companion and business partner, Marilyn Eastman, is Helen Cooper. Keith Wayne is Tom. Judith Ridley is Judy. And her real-life husband at the time, Russell Striner, plays Johnny. And Kira Schoen, Carl Hardman's real-life daughter, plays young Karen Cooper. Now, the director is George A. Romero, and the screenwriters are Romero and John Russo. This was the feature film debut of George Romero, who sadly left us in 2017 at the age of 77. He has not come back yet, uh, and who became known as the king of the zombies. Uh, And in fact, Mr. Romero directed five more dot, dot, dot of the dead films, the most successful of which was Dawn of the Dead in 1978. He's also known for the Stephen King adaptation Creepshow, Monkey Shines, and the early 70s gems Season of the Witch and the Crazies. And you know, Bradford, that I have to ask you this question. What is your experience with any of these films? Oh my God, Creepshow. I mean, Creepshow is major. Creepshow is a sort of reimagination of the sort of omnibus anthology horror uh, film that that would have been put out by um, Avco Embassy or, you know, any of those kinds of uh, Roger Corman light companies in the 60s. But it's uh, a pretty fabulous, modern for the time, 
reinterpretation of like um, of Tales from the Crypt or the Vault of Horror. You know, it's inspired by horror comics, mm. and and you know Stephen King contributes and is in one of them. Right. It's a, a pretty fantastic uh, little movie. You know, Creepshow pulls together a really impressive cast: Leslie Nielsen to mm. Vivica Lindfors. You know, it's <laughs> it's. I mean, seriously, it's a, a great cast in Creepshow. Um, Monkey Sean. Uh, I mean, it's about a crazy monkey. Uh, <laughs> he shines. Um, season of the Witch, I'll tell you, there yeah. are two different cuts of Season of the Witch. One is sort of a softcore porn movie, so right. I understand. Right. Uh, the other is sort of ostensibly uh, a 70s suburban witchcraft film uh i saw season of the witch on my quest to find a horror film the title of which i do not know uh which i saw on television when i was probably i don't know four and a half years old <laughs> and and some context clues led me to believe that it might have been season of the witch and i was sorely disappointed um and of course the crazies uh which has been uh subject to the remake factory um the crazies is also great uh it's it's not too far afield of of zombies uh but it's a, another sort of like classic 70s horror film so mr winnick how'd this film do well, according to 21 Jump Scare Hollywood Bureau Chief IMDb, this film was made for $114,000, took in almost 5500 on opening weekend, which was October 4th, 1968, uh, which was my uh, three-month birthday. Your um, three-month anniversary. Yes, I was yeah. three months old on that day. The film became one of the most successful independent movies ever made. It eventually grossed 12 million domestically and 18 million internationally, which means it earned more than 250 times its budget. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. I hope it made literally everyone involved very very rich that would be the uh the only reason i can imagine that we've never heard of half of these actors ever again well actually um, there's there's more to that tale which we'll discuss later but actually none of them made anything off this film for reasons yeah. we have since learned but anyway <laughs> yes it's it's very much a, a texas chainsaw massacre oh, yeah. kind of story oh yeah um but for those who care about such things notld uh was also inducted into the national film registry of the library of congress in 1999 which speaks i think to just how groundbreaking this film was at the time it was made and um it still has the the power to shock and awe, shall we say. So what did critics think of it at the time, sir? Well, well, this is interesting. Um, our pal Roger Ebert didn't write a review of the film so much as a firsthand report mm. of what it was like to see the film in a theater full of kids uh, as this film came out right before the rating system was imposed. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> some choice quotes from his essay. <clears throat> The kids in the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. 
the movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. I don't think the younger kids really knew what hit them. They were used to going to movies, sure, and they'd seen some horror movies before. But this was something else. It's hard to remember what sort of effect this movie might have had on you when you were six or seven. I felt real terror in that neighborhood theater last Saturday afternoon. I saw kids who had no resources they could draw upon to protect themselves from the dread and fear they felt. Raj went on to say, defiantly, Night of the Living Dead was passed for general audiences by the Chicago Police Censor Board. Since it has no nudity in it, it was all right for kids, I guess. This is another example, and there have been a lot of them, of the incompetence and stupidity of the censorship system that Chicago stubbornly maintains under political patronage. Censorship is not the answer, but I would be ashamed to make a civil libertarian argument defending the right of those little girls and boys to see a film which left a lot of them stunned with terror. In a case like this, I'd want to know what the parents were thinking of when they dumped the kids in front of the theater to see a film titled Night of the Living Dead. This is actually an essay which is well worth your time. And I have to say, I had to edit the hell out of it because there's he spoils a lot of the film in, in his essay. But yeah, this was him on a tear. And um, he really, really gives it to... The, the authorities that allowed this film to be shown. Vincent Canby of the New York Times wrote one of the shortest reviews I've ever read. Um, he dismissed NOTLD in a three-sentence review as, quote, a grainy little movie acted by what appear to be non-professional actors who are besieged in a farmhouse by some other non-professional actors who stagger around stiff-legged, <laughs> pretending to be flesh-eating ghouls. He said the filmmakers were, quote, some people in Pittsburgh, end quote. <laughs> well, <laughs> Variety was also pretty savage in its assessment. The uncredited reviewer says, it is in execution that the film distastefully excels. No brutalizing stone is left unturned. The rest of the pick is amateurism of the first order. Pittsburgh-based director George A. Romero appears incapable of contriving a single graceful setup, and his cast is uniformly poor. Both Judith O'Day and Dwayne Jones are sufficiently talented to warrant supporting roles in a backwoods community theater, but Russell Striner, Carl Hardman, Keith Wayne, and Judith Ridley do not suggest that Pittsburgh is a haven for undiscovered thespians. <laughs> So now's about the time that we need to issue a full spoiler alert. We will be spoiling this film completely and utterly. If you have not seen this film, then what is your problem? Oh my God. We urge you to please watch this film, preferably in a dark room. Then come back and listen to the rest of the episode. We have to go out and get Johnny. He's out there. Please, don't you hear me? We've got to go out and get him.
Mr. Lorick, I am so curious to hear, how did you first hear about this film and where did you see it? Everyone knows about this movie. Everyone knows about this movie. It's in the public fucking domain. You can <laughs> probably watch the entire thing for free on YouTube if you're too cheap for Prime. I mean, this is a genre-defining classic horror film. This film probably helped define quite frankly, the concept of independent cinema in America. It is a horror film revolution. This is the first time we've ever seen a zombie that wasn't related somehow to magic or voodoo uh, in, in a film like White Zombie with Bela Lugosi. I mean, this is... Um, this is the, Night of the Living Dead is a game changer. Not only did it spawn a legion of imitators, but also Romero himself returned to not only the genre, but uh, uh, virtually uh, sequels uh, of this film for his entire career. I couldn't even tell you where I saw it for the first time or when I saw it for the first time because it's so omnipresent when you think about the horror genre. Uh, I mean, I, I think I might've even seen a sequel to it or one of the sort of tangential kind of spiritual sequels like Return of the Living Dead, which is its own sort of great um, comic gore fest uh, sort of exaltation of what Romero created in this first uh, film. But um, it's, the most important zombie movie ever made, hands down. That, that is why it was important for your education, Mr. Winnick, that you see Night of the Living Dead. Well, I, let me just say that I feel educated having seen it. But you, you were seeing this, obviously, for the first time. Yes. So talk about it. I, um, you know, I don't need to go into detail about, you know, how I feel about horror films now versus how I might have felt about them if I'd seen them as a, a young man or as one of the, the kids in that theater that Roger Ebert found himself in that, that Saturday afternoon. Although for some reason, sir, I picture you gleefully like laughing, clapping <laughs> your hands um, would have been a very different uh, essay by Mr. Ebert. Had you been in that theater, I believe. <laughs> Wild eyed with glee, the children clap their hands. You know, I, I do have to say though, I, I think and I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but I think the first time I ever saw this film might have been on my local PBS station, which mm. on weekend nights, we had a local horror movie host. And his name was Uncle Ted. He was a sort of Vincent Price type, white hair and a white mustache, but he was very sort of sort of regal in his bearing, at least when he was a, a younger old man. Mm -hmm. um, and he wore a fez uh, and, he, and he was sort of a, a magician type and he would host all of these classic horror movies, most of which I think had to have been in the public domain 
And uh, I think that may have been, it's probably around Halloween when I was a very young child, probably mm -hmm. six or seven years old, not unlike the kids in uh, Mr. Ebert's <laughs> scintillating essay. Sounds yeah. a little bit like Sven Gulli. It was very much akin to Sven Gulli or Vampiro or Elvira or right. you know, any of those folks. Um, Uncle Ted and Nephew Ned. It was real suspicious uh, production values. I really admired this film. Um, I, okay. you know, I really, I understand why this film is important. Not only because it was 1968 and and there was so much going on in America and the fact that Romero manages to capture a lot of the mood of the country at that time, but also he does it in a genre film in ostensibly what is sort of like a B movie. A lot of the decisions that were made for this film seem to have been made for budgetary reasons. However, they actually make the film better you can look at it now and say, wow, this must have been an earthquake of a film at the time it was released because it really did change the game in so many ways. And I want to talk about some of those ways. Um, there are some, that. yeah, I want to start, start by talking about black and white and what that does for this film. Um, the film starts out in black and white. It's just, uh, it's pretty grainy. Um, it's just a shot of a car driving down a road. The titles come up. I think it's the name of Romero and Russo's production company. It feels like the the choice to do this in black and white lends verisimilitude. It's it it gives it a documentary style look. Um, Until Barbara gets to Oz when it goes well, and then it full yeah. Tilt it's it's also probably the reason they use. Bosco chocolate syrup as the blood in this film. No Kensington gore here. I actually read um, in the very little research I did um, that they had a choice to start shooting in color, actually, about a week into this film after they received some additional funding, but they chose to keep shooting in black and white. Um, I think that's because they didn't really want to go back and reshoot the week they'd spent on the film, um, but I think the film really benefits from that monochromatic look. What do you think about that? Your point about verisimilitude is well made. Uh, I mean, I think that there are a, a handful of other attributes that, that Romero successfully incorporated into Not a Living Dead. There's a lot of, you know, I mean, everything is handheld, nothing is static, which is kind of different from a lot of lower budget black right. and white horror pictures of the time. In retrospect, from this point of view, it's like every choice that Romero made ha has been recycled and, and trotted out by a million other filmmakers uh, who have followed in his footsteps. You know, right. everything about this is sort of iconic and every choice contributes to that sort of overall sort of um, experience of, of seeing this film. Yeah, I mean, you can't really imagine this film in color and especially some of the scenes where Barbara is walking through the farmhouse before she meets Ben. The rooms are so dark and it's just a, a real inky blackness. Uh, it's totally interesting that you, you mentioned that because when I rewatched it for this conversation, there's a shot of Barbara walking down a hallway where everything uh, it, it is either 
pitched into super bright blown out mm-hmm. you know or, or it's um it, it's ink and as she moves through sort of pools of light and shadow walking toward the camera yeah. um and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that that is the moment where she walks into the room with uh, the taxidermy all over the walls. Yeah, right? yeah. She hits the door and is is startled by one of the trophy heads and the camera sort of pivots, you know, in the same direction that her head turns. It's really, I think, exceptional camera work, too. You know, yeah, I mean, for yeah. this ragtag bunch of, uh, of folks who were making sort of television advertisements in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. you know they they made a lot of really smart uh and I think really carefully justified choices while they were shooting this this film the one comparison that I want to make to another film or a medium is to war of the worlds um and I don't know if this has come up for you or other people but you know I hadn't obviously seen this film before last night and I was struck immediately by how how it reminded me of War of the Worlds, mainly due to the use of TV and radio to deliver key information. In fact, the lines from the reporters and the newscasters are among the best in the film. When they describe what's going on as a, I, um, I wrote this down, a sudden general explosion of mass homicide. Um, and then later the radio reports very matter-of-factly that the victims appear to have been partially devoured by their murderers um, what did you make of the use of of TV and radio in this film? Well, it's funny you bring that up because when I was rewatching it, I was struck afresh by how similar uh, to War of the Worlds it it felt with mm. the inclusion of um, you know broadcast media coverage. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not a new thing that combined with things like handheld black and white camera. I mean, it really does feel kind of fly on the wall, you know, Um, it it definitely contributes to your feeling like the camera is some kind of um, an observer that we just haven't met yet. Right. And and you are experiencing this information for the first time as along with the oh, characters. Yes. yes. Like War of the Worlds, the original radio broadcast in which, you know, you were allegedly listening to a live report of an alien invasion that would then cut away to some ballroom in New York City. And it was one can only imagine a terrifying experience. Um, to be listening to this and thinking that this was really happening, just as in Night of the Living Dead, these characters are essentially cut off from humanity. They cannot have any idea what's going on in the outside world. Yet here's the television, here's the radio telling you everything you need to know in increasingly gruesome detail. The body should be disposed of at once, preferably by cremation. Well, how long after death then does the body become reactivated? It's only a matter of minutes. Minutes? Well, that doesn't give people time to make any arrangements. Oh, you're right. It doesn't give them time to make funeral arrangements. The bodies must be carried to the street and 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 burned. Uh, they must be burned immediately. Soak them with gasoline and burn them. The bereaved will have to forego the dubious comforts that a funeral service will give. Uh, they're just dead flesh and dangerous. Also, I like the fact that nobody says zombie in this film. 
it's flesh eaters, it's cannibals. Yeah. It's those guys, you know. Um, what do you make of that? Do you think that was a was that a conscious choice? Because there there were films prior to this that that used the term. Well, I mean, there there were um uh, more mystical or supernatural or quite frankly mechanical origins for zombies prior to this film the the zombie would have been featured as a, a sort of exotic character in you know a story that was set in Haiti or yeah. on some Caribbean island somewhere right. you right. know um with uh you know very often some white Bella Lugosi plantation owner type, uh, you know, who who would have a, a horde of local villagers that he'd transformed by some some shady supernatural or psychological means or or pharmacological means into uh, you know, his his labor force to cut down his sugar cane, you know. But to your point about uh, the sort of commentary that's, that's built in here, you know, um, I would suggest that the sequels become more on the nose about that kind of commentary, you know, starting with Dawn of the Dead, uh, which takes place for uh, the lion's share of it in a shopping mall and is kind of an indictment of consumer culture, you know? So Romero always finds a way to make his zombies relevant to um, to whatever attribute of contemporary American life we happen to be critiquing in the year leading up to the release of <laughs> Romero's next film, you know? Is this the first film that features zombies as sort of um, murderous, you know, rampaging um, killers? Well, I think it probably depends upon your definition of zombie, right? Yeah. Um, because I think we could probably say that that in Caligari, there's a, a zombie type, you know, who's being employed to uh, do the bidding of his master. Um, but under Romero's direction, there are no masters for these zombies, you know? They are, are kind of breaking the, the archetype. They're kind of exploding it wide open, you know? That, that there is no, there's no magic behind these zombies. There's a, you know, contaminated Jewish space laser, you know, coming from Venus. I mean, and the zombies of this film, when you think about it, are uh, relatively camped, if you know what I'm saying. And they become a little bit more disgusting, don't they, in, in subsequent years and films, as well as a little bit quicker. Um, yeah. Though, uh, you know, if uh, if you are paying close attention to some of those reports that are coming in throughout the course of the film, you know, from, from the news outlets or what have you, um, there is mention of a, uh, a corpse that had been dissected, right? It was yes. a limbless corpse yes. that had been reanimated yes. through whatever contaminated space junk has has wrought havoc uh, across this narrative, you know? To pick up on what you were just saying about the use of zombies as a way of 
embodying the politics of the day or the you know topics that were hot button issues of the mm-hmm. time in which the film came out, one could easily just look to the casting of Dwayne Jones in this film, Romero making quite clear points about the treatment of African-Americans in America at that time. I, I believe this film was either being shot or came out just after the assassination of Martin Luther King. There were riots in cities across the country. Um, there is squabbling in this film among the people in the house. They seem to refuse to let a black man make decisions for the group. And of course, there is the killing of Ben at the end of the film, most pointedly. And it's interesting to read that the the casting of Jones marked the first occasion that an African-American actor portrayed the hero in a horror film. And I think it holds up surprisingly well. Again, as I said earlier, the the fact that Romero chooses to make points about America through this B film, it's amazing that he got away with it. You know, in a in a Romero zombie film, the zombie is always the analog for the American sheep, right? Right. The sort of brainwashed participant in American culture who is not really participating in American culture of his yeah. or her own volition. Yep. You know, who is fed a stream of information that um, dictates what they think, what they wear, where they go, what they do with their time and their money. You know, I mean, really, Romero, I think, has a, a very poor opinion of his fellow American. Um, oh, yeah. And, and that's oh, yeah. so exemplified in, in any and all of these of the dead pictures, do you know? Although yeah. the, the the zombies in this film are anything but exotic. That's the interesting thing is is that they seem to be your next door neighbors. Um, they well, could no, be, of course. They could be anybody. So I'm not sure what point he's making um, about the zombies, but it is interesting the way he sets up the zombies in contrast to the mobs that are sort of rampaging across the land later in the film, taking the zombies out one at a time by shooting them right, the head. The sort of roving posses of yes. armed men. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and the question you have to ask yourself is who is more dangerous? The, the satirical view um, is, is, is key to this film, you know? Yep. Um, is it satirical though? I mean, the, the thing is, is the film starts, the, the car drives by an American flag. I mean, it's right there in your face at the very beginning of the film. And it, it just seems to be set up to say, we're going to be talking about America circa 1968 here. And that's exactly what the film does. And by the time this film is over and you've watched Ben's body being lifted up by meat hooks mm-hmm. and thrown onto a, a flaming pyre, you know, it's like, okay, we got it loud, clear, George. Um, With the casting of Dwayne Jones, though, I believe that Romero never intended or, or, or sort of always disavowed any kind of statement that was being made mm. uh, because he, he said that Jones was simply the best actor who auditioned for the role. Right. You know, yeah. that he didn't intend to make this statement. 
And, and that may very well be true, but of course the statement yeah. is made and, oh, and yeah. thrown into very high relief by, as you said, having an African-American leading actor in a sort of cast with a, a mixed race. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty revolutionary in yet another direction. Interesting side note, at the time of his death, um, Jones was the head of the theater department at SUNY Old Westbury. Um, and they have a Dwayne L. Jones recital hall. He is quoted as saying, it never occurred to me that I was hired because I was black, but it did occur to me that because I was black, it would give a different historic element to the film. He sounds like a fascinating guy. He didn't, he didn't star in a lot more films after this, but apparently he did go on to become um, a professor and taught acting to um, a generation of students. Also, I have to say what's fascinating is the films and I guess Romero's real lack of trust to the government to handle things. Um, on TV, you see scientists arguing with military personnel um, in Washington, D.C. over the reasons that the dead are coming back to life. At some point, there's speculation it's radiation from a satellite returning from Venus. You never, it's yes. people ingesting bleach. No mm -hmm. one can really agree on what's causing this. Uh, you're coming from a meeting regarding the explosion of the Venus probe, is that right? Uh, yes, yes, that was the uh, subject of the meeting. You feel there is a connection between this and the there's phenomenon? A, there's a definite connection, a definite connection. In other oh, words, no. you feel that the radiation on the Venus probe is enough to call these, cause these mutations? There was a very high degree of radiation. Well, just a minute, uh, uh, I'm not sure that that's certain at all. I don't think that has been a explanation that we have at this time. Actually, I don't think anyone figures it out. The film does not have a happy ending. It feels right. And actually, I found myself hoping both of those things would come true, that A, there would not be a happy ending to this film, and B, that they wouldn't figure it out. Because to me, to have a pat ending where things, you know, turn out well, or, you know, there's a simple answer to why this is happening, would just feel incredibly cheap and a cop out. And I'm so glad they didn't do it. Do you think it doesn't have a happy ending? Oh, the film has a very bleak ending. Because I would have to suggest that the ending at least gives us hope that there are more people than there are reanimated corpses. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, sure. You, drag that out of here and throw it on the fire. Nothing down here? All right, go ahead down and give him a hand. Let's go check out the house. Maybe. There's something there. I heard a noise. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire. The fact that the sheriff or chief, whatever he's called, says that they're going to have it under control soon. All you do is shoot him in the head and they're, you know, it basically mm -hmm. takes care of it. Yes, they do seem to be getting the problem under control a little bit by the end of the film but just the the fact that poor ben has spent the night holed up in a in a cellar only to wake up and wander to the window and then get shot through the head does not feel hopeful to me in the least i think that's right for this film i think that's the way this film needs to end to make the points that it's trying to make
In fact, we have to talk about the ending of this film because it goes off the rails in a pretty spectacular way. Um, talk about set pieces. So this is in, in rapid succession. Ben <laughs> and Harry <laughs> cannot seem to get along. And once that rifle becomes, you know, loose, Harry grabs it. They fight over it. Ben shoots Harry, the overprotective dad slash male chauvinist pig. Harry stumbles down the stairs to be with his sick daughter, um, Karen. He dies. Then Karen comes back to life. And the next thing we see, she is devouring her father. And it's discovered by Helen Cooper, the, the mother, and in what is a, a pretty horrific moment. And I actually, I really love that performance. I think Marilyn Eastman is pretty fantastic she she does she does a great job unfortunately she then falls prey to young karen as she is stabbed to death with a trowel that whole sequence is pretty memorable um and then that very unsanitary very unsanitary and and that leads to the sequence i just mentioned which is you know ben waking up the next morning and the way in which they end this film well, over the credits, you know, the credits are, are basically rolling or popping on and off. And you're not seeing the lifting up of Ben's body with the meat hooks. You're uh, on film. You're seeing it in these grainy black and white. It looks like newspaper style photos. And it's hard not to read into the significance of that. I mean, considering what this film came on the heels of, you know, so I, I, I loved the end of that film and you know when we talk about films that really end on a high note you know uh in terms of action in terms of style in terms of the way they leave the audience feeling completely catapults it beyond what it's been and it's been pretty bad up to now but it it really goes to a whole other level i really have to wonder what the contemporary viewer would have thought in 1968 Mm. when this was released Mm -hmm. you know i think they would have been completely blown away by it because there was nothing like it you're right but i wonder if if many of the audiences were sophisticated enough to understand what Mm romero is doing in this in this movie right that's a great question that's why i sort of made the point about there not being a happy ending in this film. And, you know, was that unusual? Um, The fact that it was black and white itself is kind of unusual because so many films were being made in color at that time. I mean, that would have seemed like an odd choice to inject politics might've seemed like an odd choice. I guess I'm bringing a contemporary perspective to it. And yeah, it's tough to have the the perspective to understand, right? I mean, whether, whether he meant it or not, right. Was it intentional to, or whether it was, picked up on well you mentioned romero having directed these commercials beforehand Uh and i heard one of them and it was a pretty um political piece about black babies dying every 27 minutes in america under the policies of the current administration so the fact that he's making commercials like that at that time to me strikes me as okay this guy's got an agenda um he wants to say something about america and he's going to choose this as his vehicle for that so did audiences pick up on that 
were they savvy enough to know that that this was a I don't know if satire is the word for it, but at least a a, a message film that sort of cloaked in a genre film. I don't know, but the fact that that it's as enjoyable as it is sort of makes the broccoli go down, you know, a little bit smoother. Mm -hmm. One more thing that I I feel like we should discuss is the fact that this film has no copyright um, and is therefore in the public domain. Um, And as a result, no one made anything off it. Um, The story, as I understand it, goes something like this. Apparently, Romero's original title for this film was Night of the Flesh Eaters. And when the film was delivered to the distributor, uh, it was decided that because there'd been a film called The Flesh Eaters, the film's title should be changed to Night of the Living Dead. And when the new title was prepared for the film, someone (laughs) failed to realize that the copyright notice was not on the screen under the original title. And that meant that this film by default fell into the public domain. And as a result, the filmmakers lost millions of dollars as unauthorized prints were made, as you put it, you know, could could be on YouTube right now, um, especially in the home video era when video copies were widely available to the public without any fees being paid to the, to the artists. So um, that's kind of remarkable too, and sort of has added, I think, somewhat to the mystique of this film. I mean, it's a cautionary tale, right? Well, that in, like, that in Texas Chainsaw, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, make sure the copyright's on the screen and don't, you know, finance a movie using the mafia. Um, yeah. Here's a few things that didn't work really well for me. Just a few things. Um, so I actually have to say that I think the acting is pretty subpar throughout. Um, and not the, exclusively and not across the board. Not across the board, but it's pretty subpar. Um, I think that the treatment of women in this film doesn't age particularly well. Um, although that itself may be a political statement. Um, we don't know. Helen Cooper is probably the strongest woman in this film, but she's continually put in her place by Harry. Judy is really a nothing role. I mean, she's just someone who stares longingly at Tom and then meets an untimely death. And Barbara is mostly in shock throughout the film. I mean, you know, m- maybe appropriately so. I mean, her brother has just died and she is going through a zombie apocalypse. But I do think that the the women's roles are are severely underwritten in this film. Not much for them to to work with. What time is it in this film? It is daylight. You know, I it mean, is nighttime. It's Barbara daylight. enters the house at what looks to be you know yeah. high noon. Right. Right. And thirty seconds later, it's nighttime. If you are paying attention to things that don't add up in this film, right? You're an asshole. You're an asshole with too much time on your hands, and <laughs> your mind is too tiny. Then answer this one: Why is it the dead body upstairs never comes back to life? I think the jury's still out. <laughs> okay, on okay. the on the science of some of this. Okay, Eric, I would I yeah. would be lying if I said that I didn't sort of have the same thought myself this time through. <laughs> you know, it's like when Barbara first discovers the half-eaten lady of the house on the second floor. Why isn't that corpse pursuing Barbara? Right. You know? Right, exactly, exactly. But, you know, again, to to focus on such things, you know... Hobgoblins hanging around some tiny mines. (laughs) 
And the winner is, well, the time has come. Let's, um, I guess, maybe move on to the award segment of the show, Barbara, in which we give out prizes for the scenes and characters that we think made this such a memorable film. Okay, let's do it. And when you say Barbara, you're not only talking about the Barbara in this film. So let's start with the most disturbing scene in the film, in a film full of disturbing scenes. This is the Tom Sizemore Award? Oh no, sorry, the Tom Six Award, It's actually the Tom Mix Award. Um, Yes, yes, it's named after a a happy-go-lucky cowboy. Why don't you start us off, sir? What is your Tom Six Award winner? I mean, it's it's hard, you know? Yep. Um, But I think, in this film this film is known for a reason and i feel like the most disturbing scene for me is probably that same moment it's when ben walks out of the house at the end thinking he's been rescued he actually doesn't even make it out of the house that's the thing they actually shoot him through the window i noticed um which is even worse when you think about it like they mistake him for a zombie in the house um, I'm going to go with the um, the eating of Tom and Judy after the truck, oh nice after the truck explodes. Now they're um, like the cutest barbecue ever. They are, and actually, I have another award dedicated to Tom and Judy later. But um, do you want to set it up at Let a point in which we think we're maybe going to figure out a way to get out of this mm-hmm. when we try to refill? the gas in the the truck and and make an escape um you know there's a a series of unfortunate events that causes our two sort of our two young loves locked in the basement to burst into flame in the truck thank you lemony snicket thank you lemony snicket only to be eaten by the zombies but i have to say eric i really take umbrage with a lot of this because if the zombies are are after cooked meats, I mean, they, they, they don't need to be pursuing and devouring living people, right? I mean, we could just take them to a big, you know, I don't know, pit barbecue or I something. I was just about to say, you know, you're a Pennsylvanian. I There's got to be one or two barbecue places nearby. They could just go there and... Enjoy a nice meal, but... um, Is Pennsylvania really known for its barbecue, Eric? So let's go to our next award, uh, most likable character, um, the Seth Brundle Award, named for Jeff Goldblum's character in The Fly, the most likable monster you'll ever want to meet. Who do you got, sir? I like Judy. I like Judy a lot. Oh, God. I do. I mean, (laughs) I just feel like she's... I do. I feel like she's uh, such you know, an odd be- choice. Nobody pays attention to Judy, but I feel like Judy is so much more um, prepared than Barbara, who's our sort of like central female protagonist and is useless. Yeah. Like Judy at least feels like she's got some, you know, she's she's got something going on in there. And I feel like... Uh, she, she doesn't get the chance to blossom. She just gets cooked and eaten. I find that an odd choice, sir, but I respect it. Um, well, I'm going with Ben. Um, 
perhaps a predictable choice but let's face it the what, man is going to give the same you're you going to give the same actors all the awards this time around i, don't, I gave, I gave tom and judy the last award i don't know what yeah, you're talking okay. about i'm but, just thinking down the line of course look ben's good with a hammer and nails he seems really good at at finding lumber um he's the kind of guy you want in your corner during a zombie apocalypse you know he doesn't um, put that hammer and nails through it's barbara's it's the, head when she's no, sitting around doing nothing to try you know, you know, to contribute to it, their safety exactly just don't make him angry just, just don't, don't make, make him, him angry, angry because you won't like him when he's angry. He'll take a <laughs> shotgun and he'll just put a bullet in you, you know, whether you deserve it or not. Which brings us to the character that most deserved to live and doesn't, or does she? This is the Ellen Ripley Award named for Sigourney Weaver's character in the Alien Cinematic Universe. Um, I've never go, heard of it. I'm going to say that the character that most deserved to live is poor Karen Cooper. Huh. Poor Karen. What does she do in this film? Nothing. She's sick, lying on a towel on a makeshift bed in the cellar. She's been bitten by God knows what. Um, she's not conscious throughout the film just at the very end, at which point she starts snacking on her dead dad and killing her mom with garden implements. Um, oh, you know, trowling. I just, you know, she, she seems like she might've been a nice kid at one point. She just, we just never really get the chance to get to know her. So I, I wish she had lived. I, I, I wish, I wish we'd gotten to know Karen Cooper a little bit better. Now you see, here is where I thought you'd be giving an award to Dwayne Jones, because I think the character who most deserved to live is Ben. Why give it to that little girl? Why not who, give it to the? Who, you, listen, she you contributes can, you, nothing. Excuse me. Excuse she me. Prowls her mother to death. She, I you mean, know, you are letting your your distaste and your hatred of children get in the way of your no. love for poor Karen Cooper in this film. If I could have given anybody a get out of jail free card on this one, it would have been Ben. Look, I'm I, I'm I'm giving Ben an award. I'm I'm giving a most likable character. He's getting well, the brundle, and you see that's why brundle, that's why he's getting the Brundle Award. So I assumed you were just going to be giving out the same guy, you know, all the awards tonight. No, sir. Um, I, I'm I'm trying to, you know, you know, give a little variety, a little well, spice, a little can, spice. Well, then let's see who you've got for the character who most deserved to die. You know, the John Doe Award. Ah, uh, yeah. Named for Kevin Spacey's character in the movie Seven, of course. I hope, sir, that we agree on this one. I but, hope so too. But let me just say, the, the fact that this this award is the character that most deserved to die, and does begs the question. Of course, does any character really die in this film? Well, sure. I guess if they're shot in the head, they die. But anyway, I gotta give the John Doe Award to Harry Cooper, that argumentative bastard. Not only is he a jerk to his lovely wife, Helen, he's just a he's just an asshole, basically. And, you know, the fact that he he's so I mean, he kind of sort of, you know, participates. He throws Molotov cocktails from from the second floor. He, he kind of helps out and participates. But, you know, it's it's self-preservation. When Harry Cooper bit it, I was just like, good riddance. Well, you know, I have to say I felt the same way. Mm. about about russell strainer oh god 
in the role of Johnny. Oh. You know? I mean, he was so... Most un- deserved to die? I wouldn't save him. Okay. You know? Like, if if I were there in the graveyard and I just watched him be really mean to his sister and tease her and scare her... What does he say uh, to her again? They're coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> in his best like bobby boris pickett you know voice <laughs> yes um but uh you know i mean if i were there if i were sort of a silent observer you know and i happened to be carrying you know i don't know a nice thick goose down pillow i wouldn't rush to put it in between johnny's head and the edge of the tombstone that mm-hmm. stung the life out of him um, most gratuitous screen moment, the Gaspar Noe slash Ken Russell Award, um, named for two filmmakers known for their uh, gratuitous moments. I don't think I've ever picked up on a gratuitous moment in a Ken Russell film ever. Not not no, a not never. a one, sir. Uh-huh. Not a one. I actually kind of feel like the most gratuitous moment is sort of that that sort of post truck explosion barbecue. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I I sort of feel like eating the cooked meat is not particularly appropriate to a zombie story, but also, I mean, it just seemed a little sensational. It seemed a little gratuitous. Interesting, yeah. sir. Did I mention this is a film about flesh eating ghouls? Well, I mean, you did, but uh, I mean, maybe the gratuitous part was the cooking. Well, that that could be, but maybe seeing them actually eat flesh makes sense in context. But it's it's cooked, Eric. It just okay. doesn't feel okay. particularly canon. Okay, so it should okay. have been raw, it's, is what you're saying. It should it's have been gratuitous. raw, absolutely. It's gratuitous it been raw. because it should have been raw. Okay, I'm going to go back to Tom and Judy. Not only are they involved in the most disturbing scene, well the remains of them are involved, I should say, but they are also involved in the most gratuitous screen moment. And that is the tender touching scene between Tom and Judy before he heads out to gas up the truck. There is a moment where they have a really heartfelt discussion that comes straight out of left field. He talks about her smile, I think they kiss at one point. I think the score kind of rises to meet the moment. Um, score. And it feels entirely grafted on in order to make us invest in these characters more. But the truth is, we don't know anything about them. So we don't feel anything. So the scene is really just a mockish attempt to raise some stakes. Um, oh, now, it doesn't make... Hard-hearted. Look, sir, sir, it doesn't make the fact that they blow up in the truck any worse or any better, but at the same time, it's just like, you know, there's nothing like it in the film. And so to me, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. And what sticks out like a sore thumb should be cut off like a sore thumb. You know, and if there's any film in which a sore thumb should be cut off, it's this one. Night of the Living Dead. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you do, give us a rating on iTunes, tell your friends, and smash that subscribe button. And be sure to check out additional information on our website, 21jumpscare.com. Uh, our theme music is by Sir Cubworth. Um, how, how can our audience find you online, Mr. Winnick? 
Well, I'm doing a podcast called 21 Jump Scare with you, Mr. Lorik. So never heard of it. Well, thank you very much for joining us, folks. Uh, we will see you next time at the Internet's latest address for horror. 21 Jump Scare.